0: And it was not until Sully came on and he just said those three words, brace for impact. And once he said that, then everything else changed forever. So I'm trying to text my wife on the way down. And I put on there, he says, the engine's on fire. I love you with all my heart. Please tell the kids I love them too. And that time I looked out, we could not have been more than three, 400 feet from impact. And I pressed send and just ducked and then all heck broke loose at that time.
1: You're listening to an American Red Cross in Greater New York podcast. On
2: January 15, 2009, at 3.25 p.m., a U.S. Airways flight, carrying 155 passengers, departed from LaGuardia Airport in Queens, New York, for Charlotte, North Carolina. It was a routine flight that quickly became anything but routine. Shortly after takeoff, both of the plane's engines failed. Forcing the captain to make a life and death decision. Many call what happened next a miracle. Hello, everyone. I'm Olivia Kozlevkar from the American Red Cross in Greater New York. Welcome back to the third season of our podcast, where we examine some of the emergencies that shaped our country over the past 20 years. In this episode, we will look back at U.S. Airways Flight 1549, also known as the Miracle on the Hudson. We'll hear from some of the passengers and crew who experienced one of the most terrifying moments imaginable, as well from our Red Cross team members who immediately spring into action to help. We'll start off by hearing from Beth McHugh, one of the plane's passengers who vividly remembers how the day began.
1: It was the coldest day yet that winter in New York City. It was about 19 degrees outside and it was 36 degrees in the Hudson River water. It was cold. It had been snowing all morning, so all the flights were delayed at Labordia. We boarded the plane late. It was delayed just like everything else. We were going out of a different gate than we usually went out of for this flight. And the plane was full, completely full. It took a long time to load all the people onto the plane. And we finally took off at 3.26. Captain
2: Chelsea Sully Sullenberger saw it as any other flight before he was put to the test. Sully, a veteran combat pilot with 42 years experience as a commercial pilot, recounts the beginning of the life-changing flight.
3: It was a normal uh, climb out in every regard. And about 90 seconds after takeoff, I noticed there were birds filling the entire windscreen from top to bottom, left to right, large birds, too close to avoid. It felt like the airplane being pelted by heavy rain or hail. It sounded like the worst thunderstorm I'd ever heard growing up in Texas. It was shocking. It was obvious to me from the very moment that we lost the thrust that this was a critical situation, losing thrust on both engines at a low speed, at a low altitude over one of the most densely populated areas on the planet. Yes, I I knew it was a very challenging situation.
2: Dan Vinton, another passenger aboard the aircraft, describes the impact.
3: About
4: a minute into the flight, uh, we heard, the lo- uh, heard a loud boom, and I heard it on the left hand side, not knowing that really it affected both engines. Um, I didn't know it was the birds. Um, to me, it felt like we were under attack. I've never felt anything so violent on a plane in my life. So it was very. Uh, Very scary uh, at at that moment. The unknown was extremely scary because we were at that point gliding. It was quiet. The engines were out, and we weren't going up any further. So we were just wondering if the plane was going to break apart.
5: Cactus 15.9, turn left heading 270. Uh, This is uh, Cactus
3: 1539. It on through. It's returning back towards LaGuardia.
5: Okay, uh, you need to return to LaGuardia. Turn left heading of 220. 220. Cactus 15.9, runway 4 is available if you want to make left traffic to runway 4. 88, okay, I'm sure make any runway.
3: What's uh, over to our right? Anything in New Jersey? Maybe Teterrero?
5: Okay, yeah, off your right side is Teterboro Airport. Do you want to try to go to Teterboro? Yes. Cactus 15.29. turn right 280, you can land runway right. 1 at Teterboro. We can't do it. Okay, which runway would you like at Teterboro? We're going to be in the Hudson.
2: Here's passenger Beth McHugh again
1: quiet like a library inside the plane because people were whispering trying to figure out what happened what happened and we realized there were no engines and the plane instead of being on its upward climb was suddenly going downwards and the pilot banked the plane to the left over the George Washington Bridge very close to the bridge and then headed the plane down the river and at maybe another minute the captain said this is your captain brace for impact
2: flight 1549 passenger larry snodgrass like so many others aboard the plane was prepared for the worst
0: and it was not until sully came on and he just said those three words brace for impact and once he said that then everything else changed forever i had my pda and i had it stuck underneath my leg so i turned it on and um, I bowed my head to try to make it right. and That was, uh, was kind of difficult because I felt kind of guilty at the last moment. Um, but there was a calmness that came over and I was fine with it. And at that time, though, I didn't have my glasses on, so I'm trying to text my wife on the way down. I put on there, it says, the engine's on fire. I love you with all my heart. Please tell the kids I love them too. And that time I looked out, we could not have been more than three, 400 feet from impact and I pressed send and just ducked and then all heck broke loose at that time.
2: Here's Captain Sully again.
3: I saw the river ahead of me long, wide with boats at the south end. We were trained to land in the water near other boats to facilitate rescue. That was where the airplane was headed and that was a good place to go. Hitting the water is hard. It was a hard landing, and then we scooted along the surface for some point, and then at some point the nose finally did come down as the speed decreased, and then we turned slightly to the left and stopped.
0: You know, when we landed, it was—I I, kind of describe it as, as it'd be like an automobile accident at about 55 mile an hour at a glancing blow, not you know a solid tree or something. So it was—it was. Here reports. It was a terrible crash, it was was a nice landing. It was a strong, strong crash. So when we opened our eyes or raised our heads, there was virtually no movement. So I thought we were dead. I mean, because everything was intact, how can this be? And I reached over to Dan that sat next to me and I just kind of touched him. And it's like, we're alive, let's get out of here. And that's what we did. You know, we got up and uh, we were out of that plane within uh, two minutes, everybody was helping everybody.
2: The flight crew began to direct passengers off the plane, including one individual in a wheelchair, onto the wings of the aircraft through the emergency exits and onto an inflatable slide. Passengers distributed life vests to those that exited first. Some jumped into the frigid waters of the Hudson River and began to swim away, fearing the plane might explode. Here's lead flight attendant, Donna Dent.
6: We had no idea that we'd landed in water. I found out when I opened my door. And since I'm terrified of water, that was not my most favorite thing. But we couldn't, we didn't have time to be scared. We had things to do. We had 150 souls to save. So we just got busy and did our jobs and got out. And eventually we had a lot of water to deal with in the aircraft. By the time Jeff Sully and I left, we were the last three off the aircraft there was water up to the window exits. The tail of the aircraft was sinking and the water was up to the window exits. And so I started screaming at them, guys, we've got to go, we've got to go, we're taking on water, we've got to go. And I just bolted and jumped in my slide. But the ferry boats were already there picking up passengers. It was just
2: New York is incredible. And we were so blessed. Here's passenger Dan Vinton again.
4: Well, it's just all surreal. You're still wondering, am I in a movie? Is this a dream? I mean, you you still can't believe these are just things you can't ever imagine happening to, to somebody. But um, I remember being on the wing, and you know, you know, the water started up to my ankle, and then all of a sudden it's at my knee. And as the plane's starting to sink, you know, there was a fear like, you know, we need to get our the the, the life raft working. And, And so, you know, we started working together to get that going. But then in a few moments, we saw the boats coming, and that was just the best sight of my life.
6: We cannot believe how quickly everything happened. I mean, we had those passengers off the aircraft in no time. And the ferry boats were there in no time. And by the time we got to the ferry terminal, there were so many Red Cross first responders, uh, just FBI everywhere, everywhere. Taking care of us. Words can't say enough or describe how I feel.
2: Within minutes, two New York waterway ferries arrived to where the plane ditched near the Intrepid Sea Air and Space Museum opposite West 50th Street and began rescuing passengers off the plane. The Coast Guard and FDNY quickly followed in boats to help make sure everyone made it ashore. Captain Sullenberger took it upon himself to sweep the plane twice to make sure there were no passengers before being the final person off the plane. Even before the passengers arrived on shore, Red Cross team members had deployed from the nearby Red Cross Chapter headquarters on West 49th Street. Across the river in Weehawken, New Jersey, the Red Cross was there for survivors as well. Scott Graham, who was the chief response officer for the Greater New York Red Cross at the time and led our response to this emergency, got a phone call at about 3.30 p.m. from the New York City Emergency Management with news that a U.S. Airways jetliner had gone down in the Hudson River.
7: It was just a regular day and it was in the afternoon and um, my blackberry rang and it was Calvin Drayton, the first deputy commissioner of New York city OEM. I was surprised to get a call from him in the middle of the day. And um, he said, Scott, there's going to be a, a plane land in the river any moment now. And I said, which, which river Calvin? And he said, the one closest to you. And I said, okay, we'll be ready getting the report that we're going to have a plane land in the Hudson river, um, at that point in the day and that weather conditions, uh, I thought either they were going to, we were going to have casualties due to the impact or from the weather conditions, one or the other. And, uh, so I was really preparing us to deal with that, uh, early on and, uh, really focused on that until it was apparent that that, that wasn't going to be the case. And that was obviously, uh, just jubilation on everybody's part that, There weren't any any casualties. So we had visibility and knowledge of the event unfolding, uh, both in the ECC, Emergency Communication Center, and, you know, a call to me. So people uh, went right into action. The responders on duty that day uh, knew what to do. Everybody was assembled, waiting in the uh, Emergency Operations Center. We just had everything pre-staged and ready and we had been drilling, uh, I ran a Saturday drill um, a couple of Saturdays before this event just to get people tuned up to, you know, quickly respond, and um, all that paid off, but, uh, yeah, the responders quickly just uh, got the, the vehicle and, and dispatched it uh, straight away uh, to the pier, and we had gotten information from FDNY about where to link up, where the command post was going to be, so they went straight away to there, and And one of the things that was interesting that happened was I got a call from a New York City police officer who said, you know, we need the Red Cross here with blankets. And I said uh, I was able to see the officer where he was located and our truck. And I said that our truck is right behind you, officer. And he turned around and he said, damn, you guys are fast. (laughs) But it was uh, all enabled by some pre-work that we we had all been doing.
2: Here is Chris Mercado, who was the Director of Health Services with the Greater New York Red Cross at the time. He was on the scene coordinating with the fire and EMS when the boats arrived with the passengers.
5: I remember arriving, getting out of the vehicle, and having that moment when I looked over, and what I saw was that famous scene of the plane in the water with the passengers on the wing. And I'm going, what a miracle. As those passengers came from the ferry and were working by us. The one thing I can't forget is their faces, the the shock. Everyone was in 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 a numb stage, if 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 I can describe it that way. They just came from the freezing water.
7: There were buses there at the site to uh, give people shelter, and we got people out of the weather, gave them blankets at the at the initial point uh, at the pier, and then quickly. Uh, shuttled them to the buses that were waiting just a uh, short distance away. It was all just a series of uh, continuing actions to really provide what the folks needed, which was reassurance and care um, and, and just um, helping them cope with what they'd just been through.
2: Here's passenger Larry Snodgrass again.
0: I remember one of them asking me, is there anything we can get for you? I says, you know what? You could give me a million dollars, but right now just give me some dry socks. And I know, I remember when we got to the Jersey side and we got in there, they had a pile of white socks. There must have been, oh, hundreds of pairs of those things. And it was the most, everybody just dove into You thought it was Christmas. Um, they had food there, they had everything. I needed a phone because my battery was, was dead. The Red Cross went and got a phone for one of the police officers.
5: Everyone wanted to call their loved ones and let them know I'm okay. So, I recall all the Red Crosses, all of us with cell phones, handing them over, all the responders there that morning, that afternoon, and just giving them the phone so that they can reach their loved ones.
0: The neighbors in New Jersey coordinated with the Red Cross, and they took our clothes and they dried them. I mean, we were so cold and so wet, but they dried our clothes, and the Red Cross was there to absolutely coordinate everything. That was our lifeline, was the Red Cross.
2: Here's Greater New York Red Cross Chief Response Officer Scott Graham again.
7: So we were able to give them mental health support and let them know it was going to be okay and that, you know, we were, we were going to take good care of them and get them home to their loved ones and really reassure them uh, after they'd been such a, through a, such a dramatic event. Our job was to really uh, just put a blanket of care around these folks. Subsequently, the coordination team came from the U.S. Air and some others, and um, we started talking about taking them to hotels or or in some cases people went almost directly out to the airport and got on another flight and went back to Charlotte uh, later that evening. And one of the interesting things that happened was um, we were able to get a hold of our friends in Charlotte, um, North Carolina at the uh, Red Cross chapter there. And they were able to get a team out to the airport and meet um, passengers from 1549. And what was surprising, though, was uh, when people got off the planes actually in Charlotte later that day that had made it all the way home, uh, many of them still had those Red Cross blankets wrapped around them. And our our friends at that um, Red Cross at the other end were really surprised by that, as were we, actually. But it was just, it was such a comforting thing to know that that kind of blanket of security and care that we were providing. Um, and they just really felt comforted by that.
2: Here is Flight Attendant Donna Dent again. The blankets
6: we were receiving, we all had Red Cross blankets. I have mine at home. Now I took it with me. That and my life vest. I took my life vest with me too. But my Red Cross blanket is one of my most cherished possessions. It, it signifies that we made it through it. It was heartwarming. Heartwarming to know that people cared enough to try to take care of us and, and do what they could for us. It was heartwarming.
2: Despite being a relatively short Red Cross response, only several hours really, the impact of our support was significant and lasting. Here is longtime volunteer Sally Phipps who was on the scene helping.
1: About 10 days later, I actually got a call on my, on my cell from a number I didn't recognize. Normally I wouldn't answer that, Um, But I did, and a man introduced himself and said that uh, he was the husband of the woman I'd lent my cell phone to. One of the things when you're volunteering for the Red Cross is you never really know the impact you have on another person's life. And when this man called to thank me um, and to share a little bit about his wife, um, it was a really moving moment for me. Here's Scott Graham again.
7: I heard from lots of my friends in the Red Cross all over the country um, you know, about our response. They saw it unfold on TV and they were really proud of us. I was just so proud of our team and you know, just um, I think it gave an example of you know what readiness looks like. We, we talk a lot these days about readiness in the Red Cross and, and being prepared and ready to respond to all types of incidents. And I think um, you know some of the actions that we we took and the preparations that we made even, Going back to how we designed the operations center, um, the design of that operation center served us really well in Sandy as well. Uh, that building, the way we designed it with the communication systems and, and all the tools that we built into it, um, you know, empowered us during Sandy many years uh, later.
2: Here's passenger Larry Snodgrass again.
0: The Red Cross is there in the most difficult times when we need them. And uh, we're very fortunate to have an organization such as the Red Cross to be there for us. But until they were there to actually assist and make my life easier and help put it back together, I never realized the true strength that what the Red Cross had to offer. And I am truly, truly grateful for what the Red Cross does for, has done for me and does for the public around the world.
2: After the water landing, the plane was towed down to Lower Manhattan and moored to a pier, not far from the World Trade Center. There, Red Cross volunteers provided canteen services to the first responders who were conducting an investigation on the plane. As the workers were wrapping up, Scott Graham was at the site for a final meeting when a bystander approached him.
7: This one gentleman flagged me down and um, he said, isn't it amazing that the last time you guys were down here in the Red Cross providing services, was for the tragedy of 9 11. And here you are today providing support services for um, this miracle. Um, and I had never, it had never occurred to me to think about that prior to that gentleman stopping me and, and talking to me about that. And he was so right. Um, you know, the last time there was a plane at that site, it was tragedy. And this time it, it wasn't, it was a celebration of life and life savings. And, you know, Captain Solenberger and all the people that, the air traffic controllers and everybody that, the divers and everybody that saved those people's lives, you know, it was a, uh, it was a, a, really fitting, end to that experience in, in many ways that, um, it got gave some sense of, uh, positive closure to, the plane at that site.
2: Nearly six years ago, the events of January fifteenth, twenty ten. The Miracle on the Hudson, were dramatized in the feature film, Sully, directed by Clint Eastwood and starring Tom Hanks. In fact, many of those who responded to Flight 1549, including Red Cross volunteers, served as extras in the film. Before we go, we want to recognize many of those who did their part to ensure the safety and well-being of everyone on the flight, including the passengers and crew, the boat operators, the FDNY, the NYPD, United Airlines staff, the Red Cross, the Port Authority, the Coast Guard, and the NTSB. This episode was produced and edited by Chi-Kong Rui with help from Ivan Moribel and Michael DeVolpierre. We want to also thank Matt LaCour and Barbara Gaines for their support. If you liked what you heard, we encourage you to comment, subscribe, and like this podcast wherever you listen. Thank you for listening. Let's continue to look out for one another.